This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit cmfnow.com to purchase this book. Victory in Jesus, the Bright Hope of Postmillennialism by Greg L. Bonson Edited by Robert R. Booth Copyright 1999 Bonson Family Trust Covenant Media Press In Memory of Greg L. Bonson who now abides in the presence of his Lord. Chapter 2. The Millennial Question When will Jesus return? None of us can pinpoint the day or the hour of the return of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said that even the Son cannot do that, only the Father alone. So with respect to his human nature, Jesus said that information is not available even to him. Of course, as God, he knows all things, and that is quite a mystery how God and man come together in this one person. The point is that Jesus, as a human being, did not know the time when he would return, and we do not either. It is to the great shame to the Christian church that throughout the ages, and even in our own generation, we have those who try to tell us when Jesus is going to come again. We need to learn our lesson and not embarrass ourselves, bringing reproach upon the name of the Savior by trying to do that. There is, however, an appropriate question concerning the time of Christ's return, not as to the precise day or hour, but rather when will Jesus return in relationship to a period of time described in the book of Revelation as the millennium. This is the 1,000-year period that the church has talked about for years and years and often argued about. Revelation 20 will provide the answer to our question, when will Jesus return in relationship to the millennium? Will Jesus come back before the millennium, or will he come back after the millennium? If you say that he will come back before the millennium, then you hold to what is known as premillennialism. If you say that he will come back after the millennium, then you hold to what is known as postmillennialism. These may sound like big words, but they are really not that big of a deal. The millennium refers to the thousand-year reign of Christ. Basically, on the question of the timing of Christ's return, there are two answers— premillennial and postmillennial. There is another question as to the nature of the millennium itself, and we will look at that later. For now, the question is, when is the millennium? Revelation 20 is the answer to that question. Before we can look at Revelation 20, we should remember what has just been completed in Revelation 19. John has been granted a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ as a victorious rider on a white horse, riding through history with a sword proceeding from his mouth, by which he may conquer all opposition, so that the gospel is seen as defeating every enemy. Because of this, there is great supper that is celebrated. That supper refers to the celebration that God's people enjoy each week in the Lord's Supper. We remember that Jesus has died for our justification. Nevertheless, we have the vision of Jesus, the conquering Savior, conquering by means of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The questions start to arise, how is that possible? How can it be that the gospel is going to be victorious in conquering the nations? Haven't you watched the six o'clock news? Don't you know how bad it is out there? The world is in a mess, and the church is in a mess. How can you possibly be optimistic that the preaching of the gospel is going to be victorious? John's answer is going to be given to you. He goes behind the scenes and shows us how it is in terms of the warfare between principalities and powers, how it is in the spiritual domain that things have come about so that the gospel can now conquer the nations. Revelation 20, 1-6 is the vision that answers that question.
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. John refers to a thousand-year period, a millennium. He says in this thousand-year period we will find that Satan has been bound with a chain for a particular purpose, that he should deceive the nations no more until the end of this period, and then for a short while he will be set free. During this thousand-year period, John sees that those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and are faithful to him reign with him. Even if they have been beheaded, even if they have been martyred for the faith, they are reigning with Christ through this thousand-year period. He talks about those who are reigning with Christ, enjoying the first resurrection. Others will not be raised until the end of the millennium, which will be the second death at that point. Those who are reigning with Christ in this thousand-year period when Satan is bound and he should deceive the nations no more, are priests of God and of Christ, reigning with him a thousand years. This is a very short passage, only six verses. How could this cause any trouble? Wow! Little things have a lot of power. This passage has done a great deal. It is right up there in the top of the short list of those things that have separated the church in a very massive way. So before getting into an explanation of it, and taken a position with respect to the millennial rule of Jesus Christ, I want to make it very clear that as Christians we need to show a great deal of patience, love, and charity toward each other as we talk about our differences. Sometimes the debates that we have seen in the Christian church over the millennium have degenerated into holy war, or something akin to it, where sadly it appears that those that take different positions will not even recognize one another as being fellow believers. It sometimes gets to the place where if you do not agree with someone's millennial position, then you are accused of being a liberal and told that you do not believe the word of God. I think those people who disagree with the position I am presenting here are mistaken. We cannot all be right. I do believe they are mistaken, but I believe that they are Christians who are mistaken. I believe that if God would grant us charity and patience toward one another and some humility and enough time to talk it through, that all Christians should be able to come to one mind on this. We have read that the millennium is in Revelation 20, only six verses, but a lot of trouble has come from it. To boil that trouble down into a summary statement, there are three basic views with respect to the millennium among Bible-believing Christians. I have already called them premillennialism and postmillennialism. Have I forgotten something here? I thought you said there were three basic views. Well, there are three basic views, but you have to see that the titles that have come to characterize these positions do not address the same issue. When we call one view premillennial and the other view postmillennial, we are referring to a timing question. 
Will Jesus come back before or after the millennium? But there is another school of thought that has come to be called amillennialism. Amillennialism is not addressing the temporal question, which is the timing question. With respect to the timing question, amillennialists are post-mill. Amillennialists believe Jesus is coming back after the millennium. So if you only want to look at it as the timing, you have only two views, pre-mill and post-mill. Now as to the character of the millennium, there is a difference of opinion among those who are historically post-millennial and those who call themselves amillennial. Amillennial literally means no millennium. That is sad because our Bible-believing brothers who are amillennial do not say that Revelation chapter 20 should be cut out of the Bible. They do not say there is no millennium. What they are trying to say is that the way in which pre- and post-millennial interpreters have seen a golden age or a semi-golden age upon earth as a millennium, they do not believe that is going to happen. Amillennialists do not believe in a semi-golden age upon the earth called the millennium. They are amill in that sense, although they fully affirm the millennium as it is taught in Revelation 20. According to them, what Revelation 20 is talking about is not having great conditions upon the earth before Jesus comes back again. So there are two temporal positions, and there are two positions as to the essence or nature of the millennium. Incorporating both the questions of the timing and the character of the millennium, when you put them all together, you get three positions. Those three positions are premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial. From now on, I will use the shortened terms premill, amill, and postmill. Premillennialism. The premill position says that Christ will return prior to the millennium. What is the millennium? It is a period of earthly prosperity for the kingdom of God that will bring righteousness, peace, and prosperity to the world. According to the premillennialists, there is going to be a historical gap between the first resurrection, which is a physical resurrection according to the premill view, a gap between the first resurrection when Jesus returns and the second resurrection, which will take place at the final judgment of the wicked. The premill view is that before the millennium, Jesus will come back and the millennium will be an earthly period of righteousness, peace, and prosperity for the world. At the beginning of the millennium, there will be a first resurrection, and at the end of the millennium, a second resurrection of the wicked for final judgment. Therefore, if you are premillennialist, you think of the church age as distinct from the millennium. We are now in the church age, but we are not in the millennium. The millennium is future, after Jesus returns, and there is a physical resurrection of his people. There will be a millennial rule and then the final judgment at the end. The church age is distinct from millennium, which is a future period that is interim between the return of Christ and the final judgment. The crucial two points we need to see are, one, the church age is not the millennium, and two, the millennium breaks up the return of Christ and the final judgment. If you happen to be a dispensationalist, Dispensationalism is one variation on premillennialism. Dispensationalists are premillennial, but they have a particular twist, a particular set of distinctive views that makes them go beyond historic premillennialism and hold to other things. If you are a dispensationalist, that millennial period is especially characterized as a restored Jewish nation with Jesus physically ruling from Jerusalem with military might over the world. It is distinctively Jewish. 
Historically, one of the characteristics of dispensationalism has been to distinguish the church from Israel. This is now the age of the church. We are living in the church age when Gentiles are being saved and being brought into the church. When Jesus returns, what is going to happen is that it is going to be a distinctively Jewish nation that he rules over, and he is going to rule with military might over all the earth. Therefore, the premillennialist, particularly the dispensational premillennialist, interprets Old Testament prophecies of kingdom prosperity as being literally fulfilled in a Jewish state that is yet future and that is separate from the church. What will happen during the church age according to premillennialism? The church's preaching of the gospel throughout the world will be of little avail, as the world is going to grow worse and worse and eventually climax in what is known as the Great Tribulation. Premillennialists will say that the gospel does need to go throughout all the world before Jesus can return, but this is as a witness, it is not necessarily a victorious preaching of the gospel. It will go throughout the entire world, but the world is going to be getting worse and worse and worse, like going downhill, and finally we are going to hit the Great Tribulation. If you are a dispensational premillennialist, you believe that before that period of Great Tribulation, the church is going to be raptured off the earth. If you are a historic premillennialist, you believe that the church will go through that Great Period of Tribulation, and then Jesus will return and raise the saints, and there will be an earthly kingdom that he rules over until the final judgment over the wicked. In summary, we have the church age, tribulation, before or after the saints are going to be raptured, Jesus returns and raises the dead, then an earthly period of prosperity called the millennium, and then the final judgment. Amillennialism. What do amillennialists believe? Amillennialists say Christ will return after the millennium. I know this is confusing because it means they are post-mill, right? The A-mill, post-mill position, or the post-mill variation known as amillennialism, says Jesus is going to come back after the millennium. The millennium does not refer to a semi-golden age on earth. It rather refers to a time of blessing, either in the intermediate state, that is, the Christians who have died, their spirits have gone to heaven, and they are enjoying the presence of Jesus there, or it is referring to the spiritual triumphs and blessings enjoyed within the church. So the millennium is a period of blessings either in heaven or it is a spiritual thing within the church for believers. According to the Amel position, Christ's return will actually synchronize with the general resurrection and the general judgment of all men at the very end of the church age. The Amel position believes we are now in the millennium, however the millennium does not refer to a semi-golden age on earth. It is either in heaven or it is the spiritual triumphs in the church itself. We are in the millennium now. At the end of the millennium, instead of having this gap called the millennium, as the premillennialist holds, you are going to have all men raised from the dead and all men judged. This is why it is called general resurrection and general judgment. It does not differentiate between some men being raised at the beginning of this period, called the millennium, and then other people being raised at the end of it. The amill view of history is that we are now in the church age, and at the end of that age, Jesus will return and all men will be raised from the dead, and all men will be judged. Then we enter into eternity. The millennium is that period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, rather than a period between the first resurrection of the saints and the second resurrection of the wicked. If you are at a mill, post-mill, then you believe that the millennium started at Christ's first coming, and it is at the second coming of Jesus that it ends. 
As an amillennialist, believing Jesus will come after the millennium, you think that the millennial period will see a parallel development of good and evil. The world will not be conquered by the gospel, will not be converted by the preaching of the church, and will not be subdued, as yet, to Christ the King. There will be individuals who are saved and they will enjoy what is within the confines of the church, spiritual victories. Those who go to heaven will enjoy the presence of Jesus. This is what the millennial blessing is all about. It has nothing to do with the outward success of the gospel or the world coming to be subdued and brought to obey Christ as king, in which case the prophecies of prosperity that we find in the Old Testament must be taken in a figurative way, referring to inner victories or heavenly victories, not things that pertain to flesh and blood matters, or public matters out in the world between the two comings of Jesus Christ. What will the preaching of the church achieve if you are an Amil? Amils would like to be optimistic, and they want the preaching of the gospel to be very victorious. They want it to achieve widespread revival and conversions. However, the Amil will say, no matter how much we want it and believe that God is capable of it, there is no promise in the Bible that this is what will happen. The preaching of the gospel by the church will not achieve long-term and pervasive success. Instead, a period of increasing lawlessness in the future will even set back the limited successes of the church. The church will preach the gospel, we will see some revival, some periods of growth, and so forth, but it will not be widespread. It will not be sustained over a long period. At the end of time, increasing lawlessness will even set back whatever has been achieved. Review So now we know two of three positions, pre-mill and a-mill. Pre-mill says Jesus comes back before the millennium, and then there is going to be an earthly millennium of prosperity. If you are dispensational, this period will be very Jewish in character, where Jesus in a military way will dominate the earth. At the beginning of this millennium, when he comes, he will raise the saints to rule with him. At the end of the millennium, Jesus will then judge the wicked, and that will be the final judgment. The Amil says we are in the millennium now. Therefore, Jesus is going to come back after the millennium when it's all done. The blessings of the millennial period are not blessings outwardly, political, economic, cultural, etc. Rather, they are inward blessings of the church and in the secrecy of our heart or the intermediate state when we have gone to heaven to be with Jesus. This is what the Bible is referring to when it gives these prophecies of prosperity. Then, at the end of the millennium, Jesus will come back and there will be a general resurrection. All men will be raised, all men will be judged, and we will enter into eternity. Postmillennialism. Now there is one more millennial view to tell you about. I believe it is the truest to the Word of God, but I have to tell you something. Most everywhere you go where people lecture on this subject of millennium, you would hardly hear anything about this position known as postmillennialism. Why? Because people will tell you there used to be a group of people known as postmillennialists, but they have died out. Therefore, we don't have to pay any attention to them. Well, I am here to tell you that the dead are alive. We have not died out. The truth of God has not gone away. It is true that people who have the misconception of postmillennialism have thought that it would have to dwindle and die out because, after all, there have been two world wars. How could anybody believe that the world is getting better and better and better? But you see, postmillennialists do not teach that the world is getting better, better, and better in that way. There is nothing in the postmillennial view that says there cannot be a world war and there cannot be apostasy, and that there cannot be immorality, etc. Postmillennialists are not somehow liberal evolutionary humanists who think that everything is wonderful. 
We get the impression sometimes whenever the postmillennialist position is described that they are kind of sickly Pollyanna people who go through life whistling in the dark and saying, Oh, there's no evil out there. There's nothing to hurt us out there. Everything is going really great. Others say, Yeah, if you watch the news, if you know the history, then you can't be a postmillennialist. In logic, this is called knocking down a straw man, or the straw man fallacy. Everybody can knock down a straw man if you set up your opponent having him teach absurd things that he really does not believe. It is not too difficult to come along and say, Boy, I can refute that. I think you will be very surprised at how strong a biblical case can be made for postmillennialism. See chapter 4. First, the postmillennial position needs to be accurately described. Postmillennialists are not dead. We have not gone away and we are not going away. We believe that Christ will return after the millennium and that the millennium, therefore, is the church age. We are in the millennium now. According to the postmillennial position, the millennium is a period of growth for the kingdom of God on earth, growth wherein the world will gradually be converted, and those who have died and gone to heaven, those who are martyrs, those who are saints, will be vindicated. Though they have gone to be with the Lord, their labors will not have been in vain. Postmillennialists believe, therefore, that the kingdom of God will gradually grow on earth, visibly, publicly, and externally. This will be obvious to everyone. We believe that those who die go to be with Christ and continue to reign with him even in heaven, and they will be vindicated and their labors will not have been for nothing. We believe that at the end of this millennial period, Christ's return will synchronize with the general resurrection and the general judgment of all men at the very end of the church age. So at this point, A-mills and post-mills are identical. They believe that we are now in the millennial period. At the end of the millennial period, all men will be raised from the dead, general resurrection. All men will be judged, general judgment. There is no millennial gap after Jesus returns that separates his return from the final judgment. The final judgment will be when he returns. To summarize the post-millennial position, the millennium is the present age, between the first and second comings. It is this period of Christ's kingdom on earth between his coming many years ago and when he will return in the future. It will be a period of prosperity for the gospel. There will be ups and downs. There will be periods of persecution. There will be immorality and lawlessness to deal with. Nevertheless, the overall pattern will be that of growth and success for the kingdom. Historically, some postmillennialists, not all by any means, have referred to the latter period, what they call the latter-day glory of the kingdom of God, as the millennium. However, it is more common today for postmillennialists to refer to the whole period, from the first advent to the second, as the millennium. What kind of prosperity will we see? We will see prosperity in the church. It will grow through the gradual conversion of the nations, through the preaching of the word of God, not through military might, not through guns and bazookas, but by the preaching of the gospel, the sword of the Spirit. The nations will come under the influence of God and become a part of the kingdom of God. This salvation of many people must have visible expression and influence and be seen in an outward culture in society. If we have the gospel in our hearts, if God has changed us, then we have to make a difference. The light of the world, a city that is set on a hill, cannot be hidden. The gospel is going to defeat the darkness of the world. It is going to scatter it. The salt of the earth is going to do its work and preserve the world from destruction. It will be impossible 
as we understand Christianity, for there to be many, many more Christians in the world, and yet for the world to still be going to hell in a handbasket. Because if there are more Christians, they are going to make a difference in society. We are not going to see perfection by any means, any more than we see perfection in our individual lives. We will, however, see a general improvement in the earth's condition morally, culturally, politically, educationally, artistically, and on and on and on it goes. In which case the prophecies of the Old Testament that speak of prosperity for God's kingdom are to be interpreted both figuratively and literally, depending on the context and depending on the author's intention. They point to the visible victory of Christ's kingdom between his two advents. The preaching of the church will disciple the nations over the long term by the power of the Holy Spirit. Worldwide conversion will gradually bring a period of extraordinary righteousness and prosperity. Then at the very end of that period, for God's own reasons, the nations will be broken off, and Satan will be loosed for a short period to bring about apostasy, upon which Jesus will return in judgment. All men will then be raised and will be judged. Take your pick. We now have three millennial positions. The way that many people would like to do theology is that we now decide which one we like. It is the old smorgasbord approach. We have fried chicken, we have roast beef, and we have spaghetti. What would you like to have? Which theology sounds good to you? What fits into your personality? Well, it is irrelevant what sounds good to us or what fits into our personality. Maybe we like this post-millennial position because it is so optimistic and it glorifies God in terms of his sovereignty of history. That would be wonderful, but if it is wishful thinking, it does not make any difference. Many people would like to believe in Santa Claus, but it does not make any difference if you like it. There are some people who are more down in the mouth. They really are people who like being negative. They just have to be glum. They must be critical. This world is a horrible place. It cannot get any better. Whether we, in terms of personality, tend to be negative or whether we tend to be optimistic, it makes no difference. The final question here is, what does the Word of God teach about the millennium? The failure of premillennialism. The premillennial and the dispensational understanding of the millennium cannot pass the test of Scripture. As a matter of fact, we cannot, from a biblical standpoint, hold that there is going to be a gap between the first resurrection and the second resurrection. We cannot maintain that the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has not yet been established on the earth. Neither can we establish any kind of discontinuity between Israel and the church, so that in the future the millennial kingdom will be Jewish in its character. Finally, we cannot prove from Scripture that there is going to be a pre-tribulational rapture before the millennium is instituted. In Matthew 12:28 through 29, Jesus has cast out demons, and his opponents have now accused him of doing so by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan. Jesus replies, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property, unless he, this is crucial, first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? I want to draw out two things from this text. First of all, Jesus says that if I am casting out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So when does the kingdom of God begin? Does it begin in the future when Jesus returns and sets up an earthly millennium? No, the kingdom of God started during his first advent. He said, I am now 
conquering Satan. How do we know? Because he was casting out demons. So the kingdom of God has come. Some try in good faith to defend old-line dispensational positions. One of the things they dislike about modern, or what are known as progressive dispensationalists, is that they are willing to say the kingdom has come in one sense, but that it is not already fulfilled. They want to admit that Jesus is ruling, but they say specifically that the kingdom of Jesus is not the Davidic kingdom. In Acts 2, where on the day of Pentecost Peter is preaching, Peter says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Verse 23 and 4. This is Peter's inspired interpretation of David's words having to do with the resurrection of Christ. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verses 25 through 28. And then Peter says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, the Davidic throne. Verses 29-30. Peter says, In the resurrection of Christ the promise of David is being fulfilled. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verses 31 through 36. The point here is that Peter declares with inspired accuracy that when Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, that was the fulfillment of the promise of God to David that he would have such a kingdom and that all his enemies would be put under his feet. We must conclude that the kingdom has come and it is the Davidic kingdom. In fact, Jesus said, All power and authority in heaven and earth is mine. All authority. There is no kingdom that is not his. He is crowned with many crowns, including the crown of the Davidic kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 12:28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This, as we have seen, is the Davidic kingdom as well. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 12:29. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? At the beginning of this chapter, we looked at Revelation, the 20th chapter, and pointed out that Revelation teaches us that during the millennium, God's people will enjoy what is known as the first resurrection, and during the millennium, Jesus will have bound Satan. Now Matthew 12 tells us when he bound Satan. He says Satan was bound during his first advent. Therefore the millennium 
has already gotten underway according to Scripture. The kingdom of God has been established. Even the Davidic kingdom of God has been established. In John 6:39 through 40 we read, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Notice also verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. When will Jesus raise up those who are believers in him? When will Jesus raise up the saints? Will he raise them up, as a premillennialist tells us, a thousand years before the last day of earthly history? This creates a problem. Jesus did not separate the resurrection of the saints by a thousand years from the resurrection of the wicked in the last day of judgment. Jesus says that those who belong to him will be raised up, and that will be on the last day. Moreover, the Bible teaches us that those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ have undergone a resurrection experience. So those who belong to the Lord Jesus have been spiritually raised from the dead. In John 5.24, Jesus tells us, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. He is no longer dead. He now lives, and he has been raised from the dead spiritually. Verse 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Then, in verse 28 through 29, Jesus speaks of a different kind of resurrection, now a second resurrection. He says, Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So Jesus in the gospel tells us of two resurrections. One, one that is now taking place as the spiritually dead through the preaching of the gospel are raised to life and pass from death into life. Then two, Jesus says, Do not marvel at that, because the day is coming when I will raise all men physically. They will come forth from the tomb, and some will come forth to the resurrection of life forever, and some to the resurrection of judgment. In Ephesians 2, 1-6, hear what Paul tells us about our present experience as God's people. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul says we were spiritually dead, but we have now been raised with Christ. We have gone through the resurrection, and not only that, we have been raised with Christ, and we sit with Christ in the heavenly places. Right now we rule with Christ from his throne in heaven. That is God's view of our spiritual condition. What did John tell us in Revelation 20? He said this is the first resurrection, and those who enjoy the first resurrection sit on a throne 
with Christ ruling with him. I want to maintain that for all the years of debate and all of the animosity between schools of thought in the Christian church, there is biblically no excuse for this mistake. The Bible tells us when the millennium began. It began when Jesus, in his first advent, was casting out demons. He said, The kingdom of God has come upon you. I have bound the strong man. Moreover, we know that the millennial kingdom of God is characterized by the first resurrection when we sit on the throne with Christ. Paul told us we have been raised with him, and we sit with him in the heavenly places, reigning with him on his throne. We have ascended with Jesus. The kingdom has come, and the millennium has begun. When will the millennium end? Revelation 27-9 through 9 tells us what will characterize the end of the millennium. Here we read that, when the thousand years are finished, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall come forth to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to war, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And how did this rebellion end? John writes, And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Fire from heaven, destroying the enemies of God, ends the millennium and ushers us into the final judgment. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, Paul writes, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. John tells us the millennium will end with fire from heaven devouring the enemies. Paul tells us that is what is going to take place at the second coming. The Lord Jesus Christ will return from heaven in flaming fire, and he will destroy those who oppose God and the gospel. Reading the book of Revelation in biblical context lets us know that the millennium began at the first advent, and it will end when Jesus returns in flaming fire and judgment on the world. When will Jesus do that? We saw in John 6 that John said this will take place at the last day, when there will be a general resurrection and all in the tombs will come forth. John 5 has taught us that all in the tombs will come forth, and at that day there will be a general judgment of all mankind. Another text, Matthew 25, 31-32 and 46, tells us that, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, remember that Paul says, with the angels he will come in flaming fire and judgment, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. On the final day, Jesus will return and all men will be raised from the tomb, some to a resurrection of life, some to a resurrection of judgment, and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the sheep from the goats and they will go away into eternal life or eternal judgment. The biblical pattern should be clear to us. The millennium began at Christ's first advent. We are now living through that period of time and there will be no gap between the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked in the future. No 1,000-year period is available in which to stick a millennial rule. The Bible says all men will be raised on the same day. 
All men will be judged together on the same day, and the Bible calls this the last day. This is why we cannot hold to a premillennial understanding, much less a dispensational understanding of the millennium. About Dispensationalism Dispensationalism is marked not only by the mistakes that we have already refuted in premillennialism, but also by an emphasis upon a pre-tribulation rapture. This is an enormous problem for them, since the great tribulation that dispensationalists talk about, according to the teaching of Jesus, has already taken place. In the midst of his discourse in Matthew 24:21, Jesus says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. This is the verse from which we take this expression, the Great Tribulation. Notice that Jesus, in referring to the Great Tribulation, is talking about a grave time of trouble for the Jews in the land of Palestine. Matthew 24:16 tells us, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He says that at this time the temple is still standing. Then in verse 2 we read, And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Jesus was not talking about a time of tribulation for the entire world in the future. He was talking about great tribulation for Judea, for the Jews in his own generation. Remember, verse 34 teaches us that all these things will take place within the generation of Jesus' hearers. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And therefore the Great Tribulation is not something that is in the future, but according to Jesus' own teaching has taken place already in the past, in the generation of his hearers, when the Roman army came in and destroyed Jerusalem. They especially desolated and brought in abomination to the temple itself when they destroyed it. The Great Tribulation is not future, and even if it were, the Bible does not teach that there will be any secret rapture before the Tribulation. In fact, the Bible is completely silent about any secret rapture. There is not a text in Scripture that says we are going to be raptured quietly. Our last text is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. There is going to be a rapture, but you notice it is not going to be a quiet one. There is going to be the shout of the archangel of God and the trumpet of God, and we are going to be caught up before Christ. There is nothing secret about it then. It is going to be the noisiest day of earth's history. All the world will be brought to the attention of the trumpet of God, and the saints will be gathered before him first. Therefore, two things about dispensationalism have to be said. First, the great tribulation that took place in the generation of Jesus' hearers is past. Second, the rapture that we yet expect in the future is not going to be a silent thing, not going to be a secret thing, but the most public display of Christ's return imaginable. And therefore, if we let the Bible interpret the Bible, we can understand Revelation 20 a bit better now. Jesus has come in the past, and he has bound the strong man. Those who believe in Jesus have been spiritually raised from the dead. 
This is the first resurrection, and these are the ones who sit with him on his throne, ruling spiritually over all things. There is not a great tribulation in the future or a secret rapture. The day is coming when Jesus will visibly come back. His saints will be gathered before him at that time, and all men will be raised from the dead and will undergo the judgment of God. To put it very simply, from the biblical standpoint, we cannot theologically endorse a premillennial or a dispensational understanding of the millennium. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.